question for everyone out there with a womb. Have you ever raised a concern, say, to a coworker or friend, only to be asked if you were PMSing? How annoying is it when anything you do or say can be explained away by it being that time of the month? And for those without a womb, well, no doubt you can also think of a time when you've been dismissed based merely on who or what you are. It's frickin' irritating, right? You feel diminished, unheard, invisible. Okay, now imagine an entire world where virtually anything that 50% of the population says or does that defies the expectations of the other 50% can be similarly explained away based on gender. Sounds like a bad Star Trek episode, right? But believe it or not, it's not sci-fi. That world is our world. Or at least it was. What do you suppose the oldest medical diagnosis on record is? A concussion? Nope. The common cold? Nope. It's hysteria, the supposed illness where women's wombs wander around their bodies causing trouble. This first shows up in ancient Egyptian papyri and has been carried through Western medical history all the way up into the 20th century. In today's Short Shorts episode, we are going to explore the history of this bizarre medical tradition. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. I'd like to thank our Patreon patron, Slothinator, for making this episode possible. Before we get started, I want to let you know that, you know, if you really want to dig your teeth into this bizarre history, there are lots of great books you can check out. Our sponsor, Audible, is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. For example, you can dive into Hysteria by Phoebe Benny and Nick Minter, read by actress Alice Lowe. Hysteria presents tales of howling nuns, fainting schoolgirls, witches, wombs, online panics, and threats both imagined and real. Or, if you want a counter-narrative to the patriarchy, you can access Jenny Murray's A History of the World in 21 Women. Murray tells the stories of 21 women who refused to succumb to the established laws of society, whose lives embodied hope and change from Joan of Arc to Coco Chanel. You can find this and more on Audible, and if you do, let me know. We can have a little book club together. To download your free audiobook today, Go to audibletrial.com slash btnewberg. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash btnewberg for your free audiobook. All right, let's start the show. Time for today's Short Shorts. Short Shorts! Short Four thousand years. That is how long doctors, male doctors have been diagnosing women with a condition that is now considered complete and utter bunk. Let me be clear about what I'm talking about here. By hysteria, I do not mean 
mass hysteria, like everybody seeing aliens or communists in the shadows. And I don't mean just acting crazy either. I mean the medical condition originally attributed to women's wombs moving around their bodies. The word hysteria comes from the Greek hystera, or uterus, as in hysterectomy. And over the years, hysteria has been used to explain away just about anything that men didn't like about women's behavior. For example, check out this partial list of hysterical symptoms. Fainting, nervousness, insomnia, sexual desire, lack of sexual desire, fluid retention, heaviness in the abdomen, muscle spasms, shortness of breath, loss of appetite, a tendency to cause trouble for others, irritability, anxiety, erotic fantasy, vaginal lubrication, excessive drinking, and thirstlessness. I'm sure you can already see just how broad and vague this list of symptoms is. And even this is but a fraction of the total list attributed to hysteria over the millennia. In 1880, George Beard cataloged no less than 85 possible symptoms and called even that list incomplete. Because, see, that is the thing about hysteria. It's not that these patients weren't suffering from something. They were experiencing real symptoms. But male doctors looked at them, saw a womb, and figured that must be the cause because women. <laughs> hysteria is a bunk diagnosis precisely because it attributes real suffering to a completely unreal cause. Now, just imagine being a woman going to see your doctor in, say, 19th century France, which supposedly experienced a hysteria epidemic, so they say. Now, you're going to the doctor for something quite serious. Your left hand has seized up and you cannot unclench it, which actually happened to a number of Dr. Chocot's quote-unquote hysteric patients in Paris. Now, being the clever thing that you are, you telegram ahead to the doctor describing your symptoms but giving only your last name with no Mr., no Mrs., no Mademoiselle, nothing. So he enters the waiting room, staring at a clipboard, scratching his head with a bewildered look on his face, until he looks up and sees you, and then he's like, aha, you found the cause, the uterus. This was the experience of many women, not just in 19th century France, but all across Western history. And I cannot imagine the sheer irritation of all those women feeling diminished, unheard, invisible. I mean, it's bad enough for women today to have to deal with guys dismissing whatever unpleasant thing that you have just said as the result of, say, PMS. But at least PMS is a real thing that afflicts some, if not all, about 48% of reproductive women in the world, according to a 2013 meta-study. In the case of hysteria, however, it's completely bogus, and yet women have been dealing with their legitimate symptoms being dismissed as hysteria for four millennia. Alright, so let's explore this weird history. Let's go all the way back to its beginnings, which takes us to ancient Egypt. The oldest known medical text in history is the Cahun Gynecological Papyrus from ancient Egypt, circa 1800 BCE, and it contains cases of women suffering from a variety of ailments, everything from sore limbs to toothaches, which are attributed in nearly every case to, quote, 
discharges of the womb, terrors of the womb, deprivation of the womb, and so on. Here is a particularly odd one from the text. Examination of a woman who is ill from her womb wandering. You should say of it, what do you smell? And if she tells you, I smell roasting, you should say of it, it is wrappings of the womb. You should treat it by fumigating her with whatever she smells as roast. Now, by fumigation, the text means wafting the lady bits with enticing scents. Now, sure, I can imagine why the scent of roast might be appealing. Who doesn't like barbecue? Apologies, vegetarians. But why would you wave that scent around down there? Well, the Egyptian papyri doesn't... Well, the Egyptian text doesn't really give us their reasoning, so we don't know for sure. But at least by the time we get to the ancient Greeks, we are on much firmer ground. See, apparently the Greeks thought of the uterus as a semi-intelligent creature in its own right that can be corralled like a farm animal using appealing scents. And the Greeks have actually left us a fairly detailed account of their thought process behind this. Now, last time when we were talking about the history of the clitoris, we saw that among the Greeks there were two main schools of physicians, the Hippocratics and the Galenites, the former acknowledging the clitoris and the latter denying it. Now, in the matter of the wandering womb here, however, it seems that all the physicians were very much in uniform agreement that the womb is a wandering animal inside a woman's body. We have a neat little summary from the 2nd century CE author Eretaeus of Cappadocia, who is describing the view from ancient Greece much earlier. In the middle of the flanks of women lies the womb, of female viscous closely resembling an animal, for it is moved of itself hither and thither in the flanks, also upwards in a direct line to below the cartilage of the thorax, and also obliquely to the right or to the left. Now it's doing the time warp. Either to the liver or spleen, and it likewise is subject to prolapses downwards, and in a word, it is altogether erratic. It delights also in fragrant smells and advances toward them, and it has an aversion to fetid smells and flees from them. And on the whole, the womb is like an animal within an animal. And there you have it, the traditional treatment already seen in ancient Egypt, fumigation. Now, notably, mention is made not only of fragrant smells to be applied below, but also of fetid or repugnant smells, presumably to be applied above at the nostrils in order to repel the uterus down to its proper position. You could kind of use this carrot and stick method to supposedly corral this animal within an animal. And this treatment was common throughout Western history and may even have echoes all the way up to the Victorian era. See, women in the Victorian period often carried smelling salts in their purses in case of fainting, and the reasoning behind the efficacy of the acrid salt scent may in fact recall treatments of hysteria by using unpleasant odors to drive the womb back into place. <laughs> Didn't think that when you were watching Downton Abbey, did you? Anyway, that was one treatment for hysteria. But there were others. Actually, the preferred remedy throughout most of Western history, believe it or not, was sex. And I should say, heterosexual sex. 
See, the Greeks thought the womb longed for procreation and grew ill without a vigorous sex life. Thus, often the prescription offered to a patient was simply, go get married. In fact, sex was so essential to female health that when ancient Greek men went off to war or wherever for a long time, they actually often gave their wives dildos made of wood, stone, or leather lubricated with olive oil to quote-unquote treat the condition themselves on their own. Sex, and specifically penetrative sex, was considered necessary for female health. Now just imagine the impact of that view for those who, say, loved other women, or for those who prefer not to have sex with anybody. The lifestyle of lesbians, or asexuals as we would call them today, might even have been seen as dangerous to their own health in the days of ancient Greece. However, we do find other opinions popping up throughout history. In the Roman Imperial period in the 2nd century CE, a Greek physician by the name of Soranus actually recommended the complete opposite of this. He held that it was actually sex that led to women's disorders, and that the proper treatment and ideal life for women was perpetual virginity. So, okay, come on, ancient world, get your story straight here. Which one is it? Now, Serranus is today considered the father of scientific gynecology and obstetrics, and his treatments for hysteria were actually quite different from his contemporaries. Hot baths, massages, exercise. Man, now that actually sounds pretty nice. I don't know how well it treated the specific symptoms that women had at the time, but I'm sure it at least offered a welcome respite for women in late antiquity. And that brings us pretty much to the end of the ancient period. With the fall of the Roman Empire, Europe plunges into the medieval period. Much of the learning of the ancient world was lost when the Roman Empire disintegrated. Now, given what we just said, it may not sound like much of a loss. But actually, they didn't lose that particular part. Insofar as medical traditions were preserved in the Middle Ages, with regard to hysteria, we find that physicians mostly fell in line with what people believed in the ancient period. They followed in the footsteps of Hippocrates and Galen, and few actually took after the comparatively progressive views of Serranus, unfortunately. We do, however, in the medieval period, encounter a surprising figure that's worth noting. In the Middle Ages, we find the first woman doctor in Christian Europe, one Trotila de Ruggiero, from the Italian city of Salerno. And she was known to her contemporaries as the Sanatrix Salernitana, or Doctoress of Salerno. And oh my god, finally, right? A woman who can set the record straight here. Well, unfortunately she pretty much follows in the Hippocratic tradition as well with regard to hysteria, seeing abstinence as a cause of hysteria in women's disorders. Now, I mean, mad props for just achieving the status of doctor as a lady in a time like that, but seriously? Well, I guess it just goes to show how deeply ingrained hysteria was in the culture of the time. And, you know, it's just plain difficult to escape something like that. I mean, by then, hysteria had been accepted as fact for over 2,000 years, and when you are raised and educated in that mindset, it's just hard to see outside of it. So even women 
often perpetuated this bunk medical diagnosis. So basically the Middle Ages were largely an extension of the ancient period when it came to hysteria. However, things do begin to change a bit, finally, as we move on to the Renaissance. Hey folks, little update here. What originally followed was a section on the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, but scholarly opinion has shifted on parts of what I used to have here, and until I'm able to do the research to find out what really went down during these periods, I'm afraid we're gonna have to have a little awkward gap here. Sometimes that's just what happens when you have a historical conscience about these things, and in the interest of getting it right, that's what we're going to have to do. So I hope you'll understand. Our story picks up again in Gilded Age France, where doctors are finally beginning to take a different view of hysteria, though they still had a long way to go. In the late 19th century in France, the father of neurology, Dr. Jean-Baptiste Charcot, took a particular interest in hysteria. There was supposedly an epidemic happening in France at that time, and he was there to cure it. Or actually, not so much cure it as to discover a neurological cause for it and therefore secure his fame. His patients were many, and their symptoms were varied, but largely focused on what we would probably recognize today as psychosomatic and dissociative disorders. Now, his experiments were bizarre, often including hypnosis and an almost sideshow-like display of command and control over his women patients. For example, he would give lectures where he would invite medical students and other people interested to see his procedures, and he would bring out one of his women patients and, through hypnosis, cause her muscles to seize up so tightly and rigidly that he could suspend her between two chairs, one at the neck and one at the feet, with nothing in between without her falling. That's how rigidly her muscles seized up. And he just did this day in and day out to demonstrate his knowledge. Meanwhile, these women were being displayed like sideshow acts. Now, if you want to learn more about Charcot's weird and often chilling research, we did a whole series on hysteria on my other show, Dead Ideas, including a full episode on Charcot and his female patients. Now, Charcot died without ever finding a neurological cause for hysteria, which comes as no surprise to us today since we know that there is no cause for it. It was bunk. But even in Charcot's day, it was already starting to be dismissed as a quote-unquote wastebasket diagnosis, meaning whatever you can't attribute to other causes, you attribute to hysteria. Then, in the 20th century, hysteria gradually began to fall out of favor and receded into the wastebasket of history, and the rate of diagnosis sharply declined after the 1910s. Now, why would that be? After 4,000 years, why would it suddenly just start to decline? Well, Part of it may have been due to the First World War, oddly enough. See, the decline in hysteria cases coincided with the end of World War I in 1918, when the medical establishment confronted innumerable cases of shell-shocked male soldiers coming back from the fronts who were acting very much like hysterical women. But how could they be hysterical if they were men? Now, up until this time... There were some physicians here and there who acknowledged that 
men maybe could experience hysteria or hysteria-like symptoms, but they had always maintained that it was rare in men, whereas it was overwhelmingly common in women. However, with the sheer rate of the traumas experienced by droves of men in World War I coming back with what we would definitely diagnose as PTSD, it just became so much harder to maintain this idea that it was a woman's disease. And if it's not a woman's disease, well, it seems to have led to a disenchantment with the idea of hysteria generally. So that's part of the explanation. Another part of it may have been due to pornography, believe it or not. See, in the 1920s, film was well established and vibrators began to appear in films including pornographic films, and historian Rachel Maines suggests that with this, the illusion that these devices were purely medical tools could just no longer be maintained. And vibrators then went underground, no longer even enjoying a veneer of respectability, until the 1960s when they finally reemerged. But by then, there were new attitudes towards sex, and vibrators were just openly marketed as straightforward sexual aids and not medical devices. So that's another reason why hysteria seems to have gone by the wayside. Meanwhile, at the same time, the symptoms that had previously been attributed to hysteria were reclassified as other more specific disorders, such as conversion disorder, anxiety disorder, PTSD, and things like that. And finally, the last nail in the coffin came when the American Psychiatric Association published the first DSM, or Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. You know, that's the Bible that psychiatrists use even today to diagnose patients. When they published the first one in 1952, hysteria was not included. So officially, it was no longer a valid diagnosis. So it seems that the 4,000-year-old reign of hysteria is finally over. It went from a semi-intelligent animal wandering around the body and treated by sense and sex to a neurological disorder for which a neurological cause could not be found and which resembled equivalent male symptoms so clearly that doctors conveniently chose to forget about it. Now, there are still a few kook articles here and there that you can find that make reference to it. I saw one as recently as 2017. But for the most part, this diagnosis, thankfully, is dead at last. So the next time that somebody asks if you're PMSing, or if you should get into your head to ask that of someone, just remember the countless generations of women who basically had that same attitude taken to them for just about every symptom under the sun. And their condition, unlike PMS, didn't even really exist. Doctors, sometimes even women doctors, just looked at their patients and all they could see was a uterus and they just simply could not see past it. It's definitely one for the dustbin of history. The animal inside the animal is dead at last, and the womb wanders no more. Well, I hope you learned something today, folks. I certainly did. 
If you like what we're doing here and you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is subscribe, download all the episodes, and rate and review on iTunes. You can also pledge on Patreon, where $5 a month gets you a portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you as a semi-intelligent alien creature wandering around inside the inner space of a woman's body. Or whatever you want, I'll make you look awesome, I promise. Just go to www.patreon.com slash btnewberg. That's patreon.com slash btnewberg. All right, coming up next, our next episode will arrive a bit early, just in time for Valentine's Day. We're doing a lovely little topic for all you lovers out there. It seems there was a ridiculous number of folktales from around the world, all featuring women with teeth in their snatches. We will be talking about the disturbingly common motif of the vagina dentata. That ought to put you in the mood for Valentine's Day. We'll see you next time for that. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.